Hey everyone, great to be with you guys. Nothing like being in a room where God pours His presence out. It's amazing how we forget that God is real, <laughs> especially after Black Friday. <laughs> My kids, um, Finn, who was sitting here holding that little baby, said to me on Black Friday, like, Dad, what are you doing out here? Go buy something. <laughs> what did I buy? Oh, I bought six eight-kilogram buckets of chlorine, 120 <laughs> rand. And I stood in the express aisle, 10 items or less, and some lady saw my big trolley and said, sorry, this is the express, express, express aisle. So I said, count for items. <laughs> so um, we're calling this series The Generosity Gospel. And um, we actually got the name because... Because Julie uh, has been filming this team of African um, theologians from around Africa who are in Cape Town at the moment for a three-month project, writing a book called The Generosity Gospel to respond to the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel uh, is, is basically this teaching that has been tremendously successful in Africa. Uh, you know, ever since the rise of American televangelists, this you know, it really is false teaching called the prosperity gospel got into the church, especially Pentecostal sections of the church, and especially parts of the world that are materially poor, like Africa, uh, South America, and it's thrived. In almost every city, you get these sprawling churches where there's a lot of good stuff happening. But the idea is the Bible teaches that God wants every person, every believer to prosper in their finances and health in this life. It's yours to claim if you will just, one, name it with your mouth, two, claim it by faith, three, rebuke the devil, and four, give your money to the man of God. <laughs> it's a pretty winning formula. And then, of course, the person who's doing this teaching is wearing a flashy suit and going, look how prosperous I am. But the irony is they're collecting the money. <laughs> they're the one that benefits from the, from the prosperity theology. So we thought, you know, what Africa needs is the generosity gospel, the generosity gospel. Um, I had a cute little story, which I still want to squeeze in. Last night at bedtime, I'm busy putting Charlie to bed. And Charlie, you know, every now and then he tells me things I need to know. And he's figured out what's happening in the world. So he says, you know, Dad, the Russians, they were bombing, um, you, you, they're bombing Ukraine. But you know what else they've done? They made a disease to, to, they want to release on the Ukrainians. But, and they tested on a bat, Dad. And, uh, you know, they put the bat in the cage, but then there's, there was um, load shedding. So the lock came undone. The bat flew out, Dad, and flew to China. And the snake ate it. And then a person ate the snake and coughed on someone, and that's corona. And um, he says, Dad, I blame corona on the Russians. <laughs> so I'm blaming the prosperity gospel today on the Russians. <laughs> Actually, you can blame that one squarely on the American church. It comes from America. So let me dive in. The thing about the prosperity gospel is there are verses in the Bible that seem to support it. But of course, you're, not meant, you're meant to read every verse in context, and you need to see what the whole Bible says on something. So, so for example, God made Abraham, the father of faith, wealthy. Or the Bible says God is able to meet all my needs. But you need to read every verse in context. So a famous one is, you don't, um, you don't have because you don't ask. Okay? That sounds like you can claim it. Well, the very next verse says, you ask, but you don't receive because you ask wrongly so that you can spend it on your passions. 
Or Proverbs 18.21, your tongue has the power of life and death. So the idea is you can speak over your life, your circumstances, you know, financial blessing. Well, a few chapters before, it says all hard work pays off, but if all you do is talk, you will be poor. So you need to read verses in light of other verses. And then Abraham had become very rich, says Genesis 13, verse 2. He had a lot of livestock and silver and gold. God had given him this wealth. But Proverbs 13 says, money gained in the wrong way disappears, but money gathered little by little grows. And Galatians 3, verse 14 translates the blessing of Abraham to the blessing of the, the believer in Jesus. It says, Christ Jesus set us free so that the blessing given to Abraham would come to the nations through Christ. Here's the blessing, not uh, livestock, but the promise of the Holy Spirit. The blessing today we've been enjoying is the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. That's the blessing. Or this verse, dear friend, I know that your spiritual life is going well. I pray that you may enjoy good health and that you may prosper in every way. That's a, that sounds like a prosperity proof text, except you need to realize what's happening. It's a little personal letter written to someone, and it's basically an ancient form of saying, hey, I hope you're doing well. <laughs> That's all it means. I pray that you're doing well. It's not a promise to be claimed for you know, every believer for all time. So it's true God wants to bless you, but he wants to bless you to make you a blessing. We may ask God to bless us, but we may not demand. If we think we demand something from God, and worse yet, through the prosperity teaching, you know, kind of do these incantations and these formulas where you get God in your debt. Something's going, going wrong. So this message is well-timed with the Black Friday frenzy, where this kind of like, go and get it, it's for you. And I'm delighted to preach this message on, you know, generosity, you know, lifestyle of generosity, generosity to the cause of Christ, because I so desperately need to hear this message right now. So in case you think, oh, Terrence got this one waxed, he's, you know, he's the expert telling us how it goes down. I'm sitting here listening to my own message. I need God's liberating power. So I'm going to speak about giving to the, the, you know, the work of God. And I know the feeling so well. It's like, oh, what does the church want from me? And I promise the church wants nothing from you. But I tell you this much, God wants something for you. And there's a freedom that comes from, from being generous because God's a generous God. So here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever, sorry, one more thing. If you're not a Christian and you need a church, you don't have to give a cent. Just, just want to make that clear. <laughs> but if you are a Christian, you, you get into this liberal life, liberal, you know, this liberal generosity. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows gener- generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. 
So that's in 2 Corinthians 9. I know a lot of stuff. You can go and read it. 2 Corinthians 9, remember the passage. It speaks about a lifestyle of generosity. I'm thinking about Jesse and, and, and Gareth, who uh, recently got married. And they've said, anyone in the church, if you don't have somewhere to go on Christmas Day, not a problem, come to their house. So that's an open invitation to you. If you don't have someone to go to on Christmas Day, just lift up your hands. Go up to them, get their numbers afterwards. They have given this open invitation. Let no one this Christmas feel like they're alone. We can be together. Thank you for modeling a lifestyle of generosity. That is tremendously generous. And then also the generosity of underwriting the cause of Christ. So I want to speak about why give, and then I want to speak about how to give, but especially why to give. I've got five things to say. Why give? Number one, give because your heart has been melted by God's grace towards you. Give because your heart has been melted by God's grace towards you. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So it's a, a verse that's describing the incarnation. Incarnation is the theological term for how the Son of God, who co-created the universe with his Father, 2,000 years ago became one of us. He was rich. And he became poor. Yet everything in heaven, all manifest glory and power. He looks on all of the galaxies like a little child looks on a bag of marbles. They're mine. They're all his. But because of his great love for you and me, he stripped himself of all of this. He became one of us. You'd think that he would be born in Caesar's palace. But no, he chooses to be born in a feeding trough. And he lives a life that is actually mocked by poverty. In fact, at one point he says in Matthew 8, he says, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to rest his head. He doesn't even have a home for, uh, for much of his ministry, although of course he does live in homes at different times in his life. And then when he's crucified, you can see how poor he is. The, gam the soldiers gamble for his only possession that they strip of him, his, his clothing. Jesus dies naked and poor, stripped of everything. Why was he doing this? Well, according to that verse in 2 Corinthians 8, to cancel your enormous spiritual debt. It's one way of thinking about sin. Sin is a debt against God. He's canceling your debt, and he's heaping upon you extraordinary wealth worth more than all the diamonds and gold in the world. And what did you do to deserve the wealth of his salvation, the wealth of being adopted into his family, the wealth of having your sins forgiven, the wealth of the Holy Spirit coming and living inside of you, giving you newness of life? What did you do to deserve the gift of eternal life so that it doesn't just last for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, but for all eternity? What did you do? Nothing. Well, actually, you did do something. You contributed to his death on the cross. Some of your sin weighed him down on that cross. Jesus dies on the garbage dump of the, of the world's sin. You threw some rubbish on him too. And what is its effect when you realize this, that he became poor so you could become rich? Well, it starts to undo you. It melts your heart, and it remakes your heart to become a riverbed. So not only do you receive his grace, but you become a riverbed of his grace to others. So that's the first reason to give, a pretty good one, hey? Your heart has been melted by God's generosity toward you. 
Second reason to give from this passage, give because it's part of following Jesus. It's part of following Jesus. 9 verse 13 says, your giving is part of the obedience that accompanies our confession of the gospel of Christ. Okay, so a Christian is somebody who confesses the gospel of Christ. When I was 16 years old, I started to confess the gospel of Christ. Before that, I didn't. I started to say, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the Lord of the world. He died for, to forgive our sins. I started to confess this gospel. I became a Christian. Well, Paul reminds us that once you start conf- talking you know, about Jesus, you've got the name of Jesus on your lips, now you need the nature of Jesus in your life. So obedience needs to start coming into your life. There, there are things you've got to do if you're going to have the name of Jesus on your lips. You can't just have the name of Jesus on your lips and, and keep living like you used to. There's, there's some things that need to come into your life, like what? Well, chapter 8, verse 7 lists a bunch of them. Uh, Paul writing to the Corinthians, he says, But since you excel in everything, he lists them, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, And in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. You can almost write a checklist. You know, how am I doing in faith? Am I taking hold of God's promises? How am I doing in speech? (laughs) Do I sound like a person who has the Holy Spirit living inside of them? How am I doing in knowledge? Am I reading books? Am I studying scripture? Am I rethinking the way I, I think about all things? How am I doing in complete earnestness, this this wholehearted love for Jesus? How am I doing in terms of loving God's people? And then one more, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. We ask ourselves, how am I doing in terms of giving? You know, society commands you, increase your standard of living. It's kind of the unspoken command in the Western world. Increase your standard of living. Yet Jesus gives you a different command. Increase your standard of giving. Two very different directions. The obedience that accompanies our confession of the gospel of Christ is part and parcel of following Jesus. You follow Jesus, you need to go to war against your lack of generosity. So two reasons so far to you know, give and, and be generous. It's, number one, your heart has been melted by God's generosity to, to you. Secondly, it's part of following Jesus. And thirdly, give because, because it's, not, it's not all bread for food. I'm going to explain that. Give because it's not all bread for food. Black Friday illustrates perfectly the consumption assumption. The consumption assumption. Our culture assumes that it's all f- that everything that I have is for me to consume. We assume that everything we have is for me and my family to consume. But that's not true. Because God has given you more than you need to live on. Chapter 9, verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. So follow the reasoning. Some of the money that you're earning or that you've been given, that's your money, some of it is bread for food. Absolutely, it's God's provision to you. You may have worked hard for it. Thank God that he gave you the gifts, the training, the opportunity to make that money. So it's bread for food. Go ahead, pay for your your kids' school fees. Go ahead, go to Woolworths and get something nice to eat. It's for you. It's bread for food. 
But some of that money is not bread for food. It's seed to sow. Can you see how tempting it is if you've got the consumption assumption to assume that all of that money is, is, is bread for food. Some of it, the Bible says, and this passage says, is seed to sow. Part of God's enriching of you is so that you can be generous on every occasion. In times of drought, uh, agricultural farmers face a serious temptation. They pull in a pile of seed. The temptation is you eat it all or you sell it all. But the good farmer knows, no, you need to keep some of that seed for the next harvest. You need to keep some of that seed for the next harvest. To eat the seed now is as short-sighted as it gets. Some of it, that money you got, it's seed to sow. It's not bread for food. So, so far we've got three reasons to, to give, to be a generous person. Number one, your heart has been melted by God's generosity. Number two, it's part and parcel of following Jesus. Number three, give because some of the money you got is seed to sow. You just didn't know it, but now you do. And then number four, give because you reap when you sow. Give because you reap when you sow. Now, I, I include this as a reason because this is the main little verse that the prosperity gospel latches onto. And, 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 and every deviant theology or aberrant theology takes a truth, but then like takes it out of context. But it is in here, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. It's like God saying, who can I trust with more money? <laughs> who can I trust with more money? And when you're generous, he goes, oh, I can trust that person with more money because they committed not to growing their standard of living, but their standard of giving. If we're stingy in our blessing of his work, he may just withhold some of the personal blessings that he desperately wants to give us. But if we're generous in blessing his work, then he will generously bless us. How will he bless us? Well, often financially. I can't tell you how many people I've heard say something like, it's as though my 90% goes further than my 100%. My finances have been marked by many, 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 many miracles. And I wonder if we ever tie God's hands because we clutch onto what we have so tightly. As we sow the seed, we, there's something supernatural that comes over our financial lives. But it's not guaranteed. It's possible that you would give. And the Bible speaks about giving sacrificially. You might give sacrificially and now you've got less to live on. And you might even feel like, uh, you feel the sacrifice of that. So it's not like, okay, you give, and then don't worry, you're going to eat even more food tomorrow than you would have. You might eat less because you gave. But still, the Bible does say that, that our lives might be marked by something supernatural, our finances. And, and then God won't necessarily bless us financially. I mean, with an imagination like God's, he, you know, he might be able to bless us in all other kinds of ways. We give generously, and there's just a blessing that comes back upon our lives. It's like when we sow the seed, we reap in some ways. We don't tell God how we reap. We allow God to surprise us. So four reasons that we give generously. Our heart is melted by God's grace. It's part of following Jesus. It's not all bread for food. And as you, as you sow, you reap. But I got one, one more for you. Give because ministry changes lives. Give because ministry changes lives. Uh, verse 12 says, This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God. So the Apostle Paul 
is writing, writing and, he, and he's speaking to a judge that gives to ministry, basically underwrites people and churches so they can do God's work. And he says, but don't you see it? When these people do God's work, lives are changed. And these people who, who maybe before didn't praise God, now they become Christians, now they're growing as Christians, they're praising God. So, so you see, lives are being changed. Somehow, money has been translated into, into souls. There's, there's this famous, um, in South Africa, funder where they give away millions of, of uh, rands every year, and they especially love to give to Christian ministries. And uh, they, they're, they're Afrikaans, and they, the way they evaluate these giving opportunities, they call it rant. What's the soul in Afrikaans again? Seal. Rant per seal. Rant per seal, which is quite an economic way of thinking of it. It's like, we give this much money, how many souls can we see? Now, I don't think it's right to put that upon a church, but it is an, a thought that, 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 that financial investment into ministries can result in changed lives. Paul at least thinks so. And I think we, we need to recognize that. You know, Paul is speaking about investing your money. Um, Julie and I have forgotten to tell our kids about you know, investing for the, the long term. We, we, we realize that because every time they get money, they win a prize or they do well in maths and they get some money. They're planning in the next few months how they can spend it. You know, so they're saving for the next three months so they can spend it. And then, and then we realize what we're doing because one of our friends, uh, one of our sons, our friends, <laughs> one of our sons, he's got a younger friend who looks up to him. He's only in primary school, the son. He's got a younger friend who looks up to him as like a role model. And this younger friend emails him and he says, hey, so tell me, Finn, um, you know, I've been saving my money, and I'm wanting to invest my money. I'm investing in, pardon? He says, I'm investing my money in Satrix, um, but I'd like to diversify. Can you make any recommendations? <laughs> Finn doesn't know what this kid's talking about, we realize, because you see how he emails back. He emails him back, and he says, um, you know, I recommend F&B, eh? Hey? <laughs> And then uh, after we explained to Finn like, how, that, uh, what a bad answer that was, he's now all into, he's on stock exchange. He wants to learn all about this. And investing is a decent thing to do. But, um, but, but, but there's the spiritual investment in changed lives. You can invest in your old age or you can invest in changed lives, which lasts for all eternity. So we give to the cause of Christ because it changes lives. It changes lives. Okay, so that's why to give. Um, I really need to hear that because I, my motivation level for giving runs surprisingly low as the year ticks on, and especially when expenses in life are so high. And I don't know what kind of personality type you are, but I am a, I'm, a, I'm not a spender. I'm a saver, um, but, but out of like panic. It's just like, if I've got money, I just go, I got it. Don't spend it. And a, 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 a holder can look holier than a spender. But if you, but if you run by fear, it's, you know, you, now that you've got through to being the giver, being a giver. So how to give. Two, two tips. Number one, give what you can. Give what you can. Um, verse 11 says, now finish the work of giving according to your means. Verse 12, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So Paul is speaking about giving proportionally. You, you, you got this much income, 
well, you're going to give a proportion. So a person with a big income was going to give a lot more than a person with a small income. And God isn't evaluating on how much you give. He's, he's, he's looking at each person's situation. Um, you get a lot of churches that teach quite emphatically about the tithe. Almost teach it like a spiritual tax. I, I'm not comfortable with that because that's the opposite of the generosity that, you know, if you treat the tithe like a tax, it's like, hey, have you, have you, <laughs> the tax man's coming after if you haven't. God's going to get you if you haven't given. And the thing about the tithe is it's an Old Testament principle. It's a legitimate principle, but it's not a New Testament imperative. I think some of us may end up giving a lot more than 10%, and I think some of us could be helped by the principle of 10%, but it's not a law, and there's no New Testament command. Instead, you've got these passages that speak about a heart liberated to give, and it's far more freeing to think like that. However, there is something to be said about becoming a percentage giver, and you know, actually being intentional, saying, you know, I'm going to give this percentage of my, my income. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2 says, on the first day of each week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with their income. This speaks about proactively giving in accordance with what you've got. And if I can just say something very simple on this point, give to God first, not last. <laughs> it's amazing, especially, especially, um, um, the, we can kind of think it's quite holy to give spontaneously whenever our heart feels like giving. And we only think about it at the end of the month. We've got a few coins left in our wallet. We're like, let me see, is my heart telling me to give? Well, you've already spent everything. It's a bit late. I think that we can glorify God through thinking about it in advance. Um, you know, that automated EFT is a powerful gesture of like, I am determined to be a giver. When I get the money, I give first. Get the money, give first. And the best time to learn to give is, is, is when you're making a little bit of money. You know, so start your kids off on giving. And Julie, how have we forgotten in the last few years to talk, like the last few years, to teach our kids about giving? We, a few years ago, we were on this. We were getting them, you know, they'd get birthday money, and then we, they would say, hey, let's set aside something to give to God. We clean for God. And I realized this morning. So Julie and I, you, yeah, we are determined to get our kids all pumped about giving. We suspect some of our kids are going to make a lot of money given their um, mathematical abilities. We need to teach them now, while they've got this much money, give a portion. And then you grow with it. You grow with it. And then the last thing about giving, give with joy and give for joy. Give with joy and give for joy. Chapter 9, verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver, and each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Again, this doesn't sound like the heavy tithing taxation vibe that, can, that, that, that is very enticing for church leaders that want to guarantee the income. Giving is a privilege. It's not an obligation. It's a delight, not a duty. Give because you love Christ. Experience the liberating power of generosity. It frees you from the tentacles of greed. Giving money away is the surest sign that money doesn't that 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 you don't. Sorry, that money doesn't have you. You have money. Beware. Miserly, miserliness begets misery. If you achieve the elusive financial freedom, but then spend it all in your house, your assets, and your family, you're not free. You're enslaved to greed. On the other hand, generosity begets joy. Jesus in Acts 20 verse 35 says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. God wants to bless you, but the best of his blessing is that he wants to make you a blessing. Let's stand up. Let's pray.
Jesus, thank you that you gave up everything so that we could have it all. And by having it all, you mean the gift of the Holy Spirit and a life of generosity. You bless us so that we can be a blessing. And as we bless others, we invite yet more blessing. Help us to be people that, that pass on the blessings, not like the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea in Israel. You've got all these um, rich mineral rivers flowing into the lowest water body on the face of the earth so that water flows into it, but it flows nowhere. And you've got all of these deposits of minerals that there are so much that it now suffocates the fish. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. Compare that with the Sea of Galilee nearby, where the Jordan River flows into it and the Jordan River flows out of it. God, make us like the, the, like the Sea of Galilee, that we receive your blessing and we conduits of your blessing. Not like the Dead Sea. Make us alive. Fill us with joy, we pray.